This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Everywhere you turn, there is confusion. Get vaccinated. Get a booster. Line up for rapid test kits. A two-day delay for the start of school. Then a move to online learning and now back to the classroom on Monday. Omicron cases still breaking records and we're not even getting a true read. Hospitalization and ICU still dangerously high. Too many deaths from COVID-19. Hospital services, even ambulance availability severely affected. Transit routes reduced. Struggling businesses further impacted by staff illness. In some cases, isolation now down to five days. Ontario's top doc stating, if you have cold or flu symptoms, assume you have COVID. The CDC warning Americans against traveling to Canada and perhaps most confusing and concerning, many people don't see Omicron as a health risk. Infection control epidemiologist Colin Furness now with his take. Welcome to the feed call and always great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So, Colin, is it fair to say that we are in a state of confusion? I think that would be an understatement. Uh, It never occurred to me since the beginning of the pandemic that things could get so unhinged, so confused, so muddled, uh, contradictory, and and just difficult for people to understand which way to look, who to listen to, and what to do. So, having said that, what do we do? Who do we listen to? Where do we turn? I'm at a loss. I'm honestly at a loss. I I find that normally I would listen to physicians, but I've got so many concerns about pediatricians and infectious disease physicians not talking about COVID, not talking about its effects on the body, which is what they're trained to talk about. Um, Instead, they talk about epidemiology, and I think they get it wrong. They make me pretend I'm a pediatrician, and I'm probably not doing a very good job at that either. So we're we're having a lot of role confusion. Um, I also worry that there's been a lot of politicization of reality, politicization of science, uh, even to the point that Public Health Ontario today released a, a public note saying cloth masks are really fantastic and more comfortable, and that's what we should be using in, a, in an airborne pandemic. That coinc- you know, coincides with the issuing of cloth masks inappropriately to children as schools open next week. So even, even institutions with which I would normally place a lot of trust I find are are coming out with messages that really don't make sense to me. The only the only place where I see reliability is among the population of epidemiologists, and and of course it's self serving because I'm one of them. Epidemiologists question evidence. That's what we do. We 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 slice and we dice, and we try and find alternate explanations, and we try and make sense of what is evidence telling us to answer a specific kind of question. And that, to me, ultimately is probably the best thing that we could be doing collectively in an environment that is so confused and and with a science that is rapidly changing. Can we then ask you, as an epidemiologist, what evidence is there that Omicron is not as impactful as other variants of COVID-19? So the answer to that is, is a little bit long. We first of all we have to understand that that COVID is not a respiratory disease. It presents that way, but so does polio and measles to begin with. It's a vascular disease. That is to say that while it's attacking your lungs and giving you a hard time breathing, it's also doing things to other parts of your body. And so we need to we need to understand and accept that first. That long COVID is not a different disease. Long COVID is the leftover long term effects of what 
this disease does to your body. Once we understand that, then we can say Omicron is a little bit less of that, and that is really good news. In other words, ironically, Omicron is starting to behave more like a respiratory virus, and that's because uh, from, a, from a biological standpoint, COVID can attack your cells in two different ways. There's the respiratory way, and then there's the far scarier way, uh, and that the far scarier way lets it go all over your body. Omicron seems to be impaired in attacking your cells in that scary way. It still has the capacity, but it seems to be impaired, and I think we're going we're gonna to need to learn a little bit more about that. But that, that says to me, and this is me being hopeful, that even though Omicron remains enormously dangerous, particularly if you are not vaccinated, you are much less likely, it seems, to end up with some of the more grave injuries like brain damage, brain tissue loss, autoimmune disease, uh, damage to your heart muscle. These things may happen less, and so that's what makes Omicron perhaps less severe, perhaps more mild in people who've had at least one shot, preferably two or three. Um, and, and the last piece of confusion here is because it's behaving more like a respiratory virus, that's good news for adults. It's actually not good news for kids. So kids are getting clobbered heavier by this, perhaps not long COVID. That would be great, but they are, they are going to hospital a lot more frequently. They're getting hit a lot harder. And that's something that happens to coincide with a, a general idea that we need to be opening schools. And, and so that really worries me quite a bit. So <laughs> it's a long answer to say, is it more mild? More mild for some and more severe for others, depending on your age and your vaccination status. Let's talk about kids going back to school. And you've been very vocal about your thoughts on this. So kids going back to school, it's going to happen on Monday in class learning. So Dr. Catherine Smart, for instance, the head of the Canadian Medical Association, she counters uh, with this. Kids at home run just as great a risk in catching COVID as they might in school. So why not send them back rather than hold them back? It's interesting. A lot of people are worried about their kids going back to school, but perhaps they should be worrying about keeping them at home and exposed to other family members who may be uh, not showing signs, but maybe carrying Omicron. So with respect to the person who made those comments, that doesn't make any sense from an epidemiology standpoint. You have to look at the size of gatherings and, and your average household is a lot smaller than your average school. And we can talk about cohorting and limiting, but that doesn't really happen. It doesn't really happen when you consider what goes on at lunchtime, what goes on in the playground, what goes on with buses and busing, uh, and 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 other kinds of mixing, other kinds of mixing that happens at school. So school is a is a is a community or communal setting of hundreds of people uh, where there's way more opportunities for transmission. And the the worst part is that then of course they go home to their families. So schools work as a nexus that connect families. So to say that. Every kid being at home is just in is just as much risk of, of exposure as every kid being at school. To say that is to simply not understand how communicable disease works. So I, I've got to reject that one out of hand. Apparently, at this point now, the government has determined that if there is an, an in-class COVID case, that it's not going to be reported to parents. What do you think about that? I think it's consistent with the idea that they can go back to school after five days when they would still be highly infectious and continue to infect their classmates. So we've got a policy here that says we're not going to count, we're not going to watch, we're not going to mitigate, we're not going to do any of those things. We're going to try and get kids infected as quickly as possible and as thoroughly as possible. And I know that's a harsh thing to say, but that's the impact of this kind of policy of not counting, not notifying, not isolating, and specifically saying to kids, go back to school. In British 
Columbia, it was explicitly said, even if your kids are sick and they're showing symptoms, just send them to school. It's okay. If they're not really sick, just send them in. So this is, this is the policy, be it more explicitly stated some places than others. And that policy is let's get everyone infected. And it's, it's just not a policy I can, I can support or endorse. The health minister uh, recently said that uh, the peak of Omicron is yet to come and could be in the next couple of weeks. What is what about the timing then of sending our kids back to school when this hasn't even peaked yet? It, it reflects, I think, the worst possible decision making, and that decision making appears to be based on polling to some degree, based on economics. I mean, the idea that we want people back in the workforce so kids should get back to school. I couldn't imagine worse timing, uh, and and it, it's not a question of closing schools for months on end. And a lot of people seem to catastrophize it to say, you know, want schools closed, you're you're anti-education, you're anti-child, and this is a disaster. No, I actually want schools to open safely, and part of that is mitigation in schools, but the other part is is waiting until we've peaked. And as rapidly as Omicron has spread, it will also decline rapidly. So I'm really talking about a delay in opening of days. We can count it in days, weeks at worst, not months. And and so I think this is enormously poorly timed. It, it just, it, it the, the people pushing to open really just aren't looking at the epidemiology of COVID as it stands right now and its impact on kids. That's what has me really frustrated. How about its impact on society? Now we think about calling an ambulance. You take it for granted that it's going to be able to come. At this point, we are hearing problems in certain regions of Ontario where paramedics and and ambulances have just not been available. And ICU beds, they're creating more, but they're filling up just as fast. Uh, I've I've noticed this personally, and I don't mean to sound morbid in any way, but I've noticed that the death count, the daily death toll, is higher than I recall any other aspect in any other part of this pandemic. The, so deaths are complicated, and it's a question of did you die from COVID or with it, or did you die because you weren't able to access health care because, as you say, that ambulance wasn't able to come, or you had to stay in the ambulance in the parking lot for some period of time while they figured out where to put you. That's happening. That's going on right now. So the, the burden, I mean, epidemiologists like to talk about the burden of disease as a broad term to say how much harm, aggregate harm is it inflicting. That can include deaths direct deaths. It can include indirect deaths. It can also include disability. It can include economic loss. It can include mental health harm. So there's a whole basket of ways in which a pandemic like this can cause harm. Deaths are definitely one, direct but also indirect. And that's an enormously difficult process of counting. I mean, how do we count and how do we attribute that? That's one of the more more difficult measurement tasks that we face. And it's also open to interpretation and argumentation. So there's a lot of room for people to uh, accuse of disinformation or to or to tune out and say these, these statistics are misleading or wrong. It's a very, very complicated measurement environment, but there's no doubt that the harm, however you want to slice it, dice it, or, or measure it, there's no doubt that the harm that we're experiencing with COVID right now is severe. Uh, it is severe in deaths. It's severe in, in every way that we can imagine, from mental health to long-term disability to um, just not being able to function as a society. So, Colin, there is a sentiment out there that we must learn to live with this virus to move from pandemic to endemic. What are your thoughts? Well, endemic is actually a very specific state of equilibrium. 
And, you know, communicable diseases don't easily fit into that. They usually, it's usually bust and boom and bust. Um, so I, I think it's probably better not to use that word. So then what are we left with? Well, we're left with sort of giving up and not fighting and saying, well, let's just, let's just get infected and be done with it. That route maximizes harm, in my view. It's not, it's not a good strategy. Uh, it's, it's not a helpful strategy at all. And I, I'm, I'm, I cannot identify any location on earth where letting it rip has turned out to be a good idea where there's been a net benefit the more you do that the more harm there is what we do need to do in terms of learning to live with it is push for more vaccination my big fear in schools is that you know 50 percent or more than 50 percent of kids under 12 are not vaccinated that is that is a catastrophe in the making. Vaccination is going to turn this. Global vaccination is going to turn this, I think, from a very dangerous disease into a very manageable one. That's a way to live with it. Uh, and, and, and I think we should be doing a lot more messaging and a lot more incentives. I, I really uh, resist mandatory vaccination because I think it in a lot of ways causes more social harm than good. But there's a lot of levers we can pull to incentivize people. So I would like kids to have to be vaccinated to attend school in person. And if you want to exercise choice as a parent to not vaccinate your child, then we should make education available online. And then and, and then everyone gets what they need, just depending on their own decisions and their own prioritization. I, I noticed in Quebec recently that uh, and there was a new rule, I think this is really smart, that says if you want to buy alcohol or cannabis, you're going to have to show proof of vaccination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not forcing anyone to do anything, but it's certainly providing an incentive. And all of a sudden, vaccination appointments shot way up. Quebec is also talking about a, a, a tax situation where there be whether you'd be paying liable for more tax if you're not vaccinated. That was a little more complicated from a policy standpoint, but it's in the same it's in the same idea or same tradition of what we can call nudging behaviors, behaviors uh, or, or policies that nudge people in the direction that you want them to go in without actually forcing them. It still leaves people agency, but when they make up their own minds, then they become attitudinally committed, and that's what we want. We want people getting vaccinated, and there's a lot of levers still we could pull to do that. So when people talk about, let's learn to live with this, you know, my answer is, well, let's learn how to vaccinate people. Very quickly, Colin, if you were in a decision-making position right now, what would be your top priority? That's a very difficult question. I think my top priority, I think the top priority has to be preservation of our healthcare system. And it, and it, really, it really gets down to that, that old saying, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything at all. And, and I, I think there's a lot of value and a lot of truth in that sentiment. So what that means, if we're preserving our healthcare capacity, we've got to bring transmission down. We've got to bring it down, and we could. There are, again, there are levers we could pull to do that. And going all the way back to Spanish flu uh, 100 years ago, there's a lot of clear evidence that regions that acted very swiftly, very proactively to tamp down transmission, including shutting things down, they had better economic recovery. They had better outcomes. In other words, in trying to choose between health and wealth, if you choose wealth, you don't end up with either. If you choose health, then you get both. So I think to me that would be that would be the number one. And, and so that would boil down to incentives to vaccinate people. It would boil down to closing schools for a few more days. It would boil down to closing certain kinds of businesses and getting smarter about how to educate people and personal protective equipment and mitigation strategies. So there's a lot of there's a there, there's a lot we can do in order to make sure that we've got healthcare capacity so that we're able to care for ourselves. We're able to care for the 
the vulnerable in our society. So that's that's one big priority that actually ends up with a lot of sub sub pieces to get it done. And the, the continuing th- theme through this, the thread through this, is attack with vax. It seems to be infection control epidemiologist Colin Furness. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. Thank you. Next on the feed, how to support students heading back into the classroom. Here's Tina Cortez. Dr. Sarah Barrett is a professor in the Faculty of Education at York University. Dr. Barrett, welcome back to the feed. Yes, hello. Thank you. Ontario's 2 million students are returning to in-person learning on Monday. What do you think about the province's latest move? Wow. I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? On the one hand, I, as an educator and, of course, parents, don't really know specifically the same things that um, the public uh, medical officers know. Um, What they do know is that they're not sure that schools are safe. And I think that that is, it's a bit of a problem. I'm hoping it's a communication problem because, of course, we are now getting this explanation that the reason the schools were left um, closed and online was because they were worried that teachers would be ill and there wouldn't be enough staff and therefore that would be a problem. But this was not the message that was given to parents at the beginning. And as a result, some parents aren't sure they can trust that message. And so I'm hoping, again, that it's a communication problem, but um, it does feel for parents like how can they know that the school is any more safe now than it was before. Because in their minds, of course, for the most part, it was a question of safety, not a question of, you know, whether there would be enough staff. And how do you think the teachers manage the anxiety that some students may be feeling? That is something that any good teacher would have, they'd have several ways of doing it because, of course, they often have to deal with students who are anxious. I think the big problem right now is that there are way more students anxious than usual. Um, It has been, you know, students are dysregulated. And, of course, the younger they are, the worse it is because they can't cope as well. But there's all of this going back and forth. There's all of this not knowing what's going to happen next. And I think that for a lot of teachers, they'll probably be, be focusing on helping the students to just focus on what is regular and that they can cope and that together they'll be able to work out ways to make everybody feel comfortable. Um, of course, the complication with that is that because Omicron is so contagious, again, teachers can get ill and might not be able to be there and supply teachers come and go. And, and then that makes it worse. Um, and so I think from my perspective, that I would advise teachers to help students to think about those situations, what they would do when they happen, so that they can sort of collectively start to come up with solutions so they can feel as a group that they can cope with the changes. And how do you think that educators support those students who have fallen behind, perhaps those students who did not thrive online? Thankfully, this was a much shorter amount of time, two weeks, um, than it was, of course, uh, two years ago. So there'll be, it might be a little less catching up that has to happen. I think that a lot of teachers these days, and especially in the younger grades, 
practice what's called differentiated um, lesson planning so that there are sort of a lot of different ways to reach the same goals. And so in some ways, it's sort of baked in that for a short amount of time like this, for two weeks, it is relatively easy for students to feel like they can still catch up. Um, the teachers aren't necessarily teaching in a way that feels like um, if you missed it today, then you're never going to have another chance to catch up. So that is helpful. The fact that the teachers have those kinds of skills and the fact that it wasn't a really long time um, that students could need to catch up. And I would imagine that um, teachers are assuming that not every child in their class and probably not most of the kids in their class would have done the same amount of work over these two weeks than they would have for their face-to-face. Now, throughout the pandemic, it seems that our kids have paid a huge price. Do you think there will be long-term catching up that needs to happen? Absolutely, there will be. Yeah, but it, I think in this case, and we've talked about this before, it's a systemic thing. Um, all of the students in the province have been affected by the situation. And, of course, the most vulnerable students are going to need a little bit more help with this, but it is one of these situations, and maybe this is a positive, that everybody is in this boat, albeit um, in different sort of uh, states on on that boat. Um, Some people have more tools than others, but it is a systemic problem, and as I've said um, before, I would say it is really important that the ministry, that the school system recognizes it's a systemic problem requires systemic solutions, and it should not be on the shoulders of the students that are having the most trouble to try and catch up. It should not be on the shoulders of individuals to simply take little Band-Aid solutions to help them to catch up. Whatever we do has to be systemic because the problem is systemic. Dr. Barrett, before we send our students back in-person learning on Monday, what's your advice for parents and teachers this weekend? For teachers... I don't think they need my advice. <laughs> I think that after two years, they are ex- experts at going back and forth at um, trying to figure things out. Um, so the only thing I would say is that I hope they get a chance to take a little bit of a rest. Um, for the parents, again, they've become experts at this as well. But what I would suggest that maybe it's time to start helping our our children to become experts at this too. They've They've experienced a lot. They've learned a lot. But perhaps it's time to sit them down and talk to them about, okay, I'm hoping that you, this doesn't happen again, that we don't have to go back to online. But if it does, or if there's a disruption, let's talk about how we can deal with it and how we can make it feel um, safe for you and make you feel like you are comfortable. And I think those conversations are helpful because it will help the students to feel more like they can rely on themselves. Um, and on their friends and on the community they're created within their classroom if they are brought into the discussion about what needs to be done to help them to thrive. Dr. Sarah Barrett from York University's Faculty of Education, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. One step forward, two steps back, or should I say back into step two, albeit modified. Dan Kelly, the passionate voice of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, CFIB, joins us now on the feed. Welcome, Dan. Let's get right to it. Good to be with you. 
So what has been the impact so far of the government's most recent tightening of restrictions on businesses here in Ontario? It's been in effect for over a week. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Oh, it is just brutal right now for small and medium-sized companies, quite apart from the financial losses, the bleeding that is happening every day that lockdowns continue, uh, capacity restrictions continue. We're also just seeing a, a giving up, uh, you know, kind of an end of the optimism that businesses have tried to maintain for the past two years. This is This is taking a huge financial and emotional toll. I've talked to probably over the last couple of weeks about bunch of business owners that have tried to stick it out who are now asking to whom do they turn in their keys to their business because they they know they've got nothing left. Dan, who is being hardest hit? What sectors of uh, the business world are being the hardest hit right now? You know, it's it's the same sectors that that really have been uh, that have been affected through because of lockdowns the the most deeply because of all the rules and regulations most deeply, and those are retailers, the hospitality sector, including restaurants, travel and tourism, arts and entertainment business rec- businesses, recreation businesses. The last few days, I've just been hearing from a number of hair salons and nail salons. While they're not locked down 100%, even the 50% capacity restriction, together with just the fear that is out there among customers, has sent their their volume tumbling. Uh, stylists that have seen, you know, perhaps 10% of normal volumes in their salons, and that's just not enough to keep the place viable. You know, you took to Twitter this past Tuesday, if I may quote you, Ontario salon owner wrote to me today to share she is only open three days a week because customers are staying home in brackets with no events and people working at home. She is subject to a 50% capacity restriction, but does not qualify for Ontario's support grant. She said her biz is dying. And these are some of the heartbreaking stories I'm hearing absolutely every day from from business owners in in all sorts of sectors. But yeah, just on that example alone, I had a a good back and forth over email with with this business owner, a member of CFIB, and and gosh, the the, the turmoil that she's in right now. I mean, she's she's questioning how many not just how many more weeks or months she has left in her business, but how many more days she can even keep it going. Because many businesses are, unlike in March of 2020 when lockdowns first began, these businesses are desperately weakened after two years of lockdowns and significant restrictions. They've borrowed every nickel they possibly can from every source. They've not paid their rent in many cases for month on end. They've, they've, they've put suppliers' bills on hold. And all of that is going to come crumbling, down, you know, crashing down on them, in, even as the economy inevitably begins to reopen. And and so this is why we have to take this so seriously and why many business owners are so angry at governments for putting these rules and restrictions in place without the proper supports to try to help them through. Yes, there are some subsidy programs at the federal and provincial level, but they're they're really only covering a fraction of the losses, the bleeding that businesses this that's happening in businesses every single day. So, Dan, the most recent announced by the province, uh, the financial support for businesses that qualify, ten thousand dollar grant. So, critics are saying band aid solution that doesn't have any adhesive. They're also saying too little, too late, or just too little. Yeah, and, and that's certainly consistent with what we're hearing from members. $10,000 is nothing to sneeze at. It will help, you know, if the lockdown truly is uh, uh, three weeks and business owners are holding their breath to see if that's going to happen. 
But if the lockdown is three weeks, for some very small businesses, $10,000 may be enough to help get them through. Um, but the problem is that for many, many, many others, medium-sized businesses, if, you're, if you have three restaurants with you know, 75 people, that $10,000 you could burn through in a couple of days. And then, uh, you know, like the hairdresser example, like the dry cleaner example, there are tons of businesses that are having their businesses dry, their business volume dry up to a fraction of its former levels or zero, and they don't qualify for even a nickel of the provincial support money. And that's a big, big flaw in the uh, in the support grant. So what does the CFIB want to see now in terms of support from both the federal and provincial governments? What more could and should they be doing? Well, at the federal level, there's a, a couple of fixes. I spoke to the Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, just last night, uh, put some ideas on, on her table. Um, and we're hoping to hear some news uh, uh, very, very soon. But the, the small business, right now, the, there is a wage and a rent subsidy. The federal government just at around Christmas scaled that back so that only one in five firms in need of help will now qualify for wage support or rent support. That program needs to be uh, uh, reopened to ensure that all businesses, regardless of their level of loss, will qualify for at least a sliding sale, scale subsidy. Secondly, the federal government had a, a very useful program, the CBA loan program, the Canada Emergency Business Count. This provided $60,000 loans to business, but importantly, you could have 20000 of that loan forgiven upon repayment. We're, we're, we've been asking the government to delay the repayment schedule, but also add another $20,000 loan to the mix and increase the amount forgiven to 50%, so $40,000. And at the provincial level, we need to make sure that the, uh, the, the grant program is, re- is opened to all businesses that have had a negative effect from, from COVID restrictions. I'll give you the example of the dry cleaner. So the dry cleaner is technically open. There's no technical restrictions on them beyond just a few cleaning, provide, uh, cleaning requirements. So they don't qualify for the grant. But as you can imagine, the government has also said to workers in offices that you're st- to work from home in almost all cases. As a result, the dry cleaner, you know, guys like me are not taking our suits into the dry cleaned right now. Yeah. The dry cleaner's business is drying up to next to nothing. They don't qualify for any provincial help. So indirectly, their business is affected. The restaurant supply business, they're technically allowed to be open, but their customers are not. And as a result, they have no business. They don't qualify for the support grant. This is These are the flaws in the system that need to be fixed. You know, I, I'm interested in how CFIB supports and protects businesses. And, and your conversation with Minister Freeland last night, are you at liberty to tell me some of the ideas that you pitched to her? Yeah, so some of the things that we've just talked about, uh, the, the changes to the sub- support programs, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, the Canada Emergency Rent Subsidy, the the CBA loan program. Those are some of the ideas that that we are p- uh, pitching to to uh, to the deputy prime minister, to other politicians at at, at all levels of government. Um, but I have to tell you, <laughs> the, the conversation is increasingly turning to the restrictions themselves. Like at some point, we are going to have to make a difficult decision as Canadians. We're we're either going to have to open up the economy as almost every single other country in the world has done and allow businesses to continue to operate uh, and earn, earn an income, or we're going to have to dig even deeper and provide 100% subsidies until such time as we're allowing businesses to get back to, to normal. 
business owners want, they don't want subsidies. They want to be able to earn an income from the marketplace. And with Omicron, uh, of course, we're all hoping that the peak is here and that we're now going to be moving back into normal times once again. But we've been saying that for two straight years. And at some point, we're going to have to figure out another way of dealing with this. Otherwise, we're going to bankrupt ourselves. Dan Kelly, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. We will speak again, I'm sure. Anytime. Thanks so much. After the break, understanding what people living with Alzheimer's disease experience each and every day. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month, and with more than 17,000 York Region residents living with the disease, meeting their needs is a journey. Kevin Frankish now with the first stop for help. And the first stop for many is the Alzheimer's Society of York Region. Joining me right now is CEO Lauren Freed. Lauren, welcome to The Feed. Yes. Hi, Kevin. Um, we are. Um, I, I just want to. Uh, I just want to say that uh, Alzheimer's awareness is important throughout the course of the year. But um, Alzheimer's Awareness Month uh, helps us to elevate the focus of the disease um, at the beginning of the year. I want to get right to terminology. So we hear Alzheimer's, yeah. the Alzheimer's Society of York Region, but we also hear dementia. We hear senility, yeah. um, eccentric. So help me out here. Tell me about the about the the, the definitions behind these terms. Sure, um, dementia is a general term for a group of diseases that cause a decline in cognitive ability uh, in such things as memory loss and changes in behavior that are severe enough to to interfere with daily life. Okay, so that is dementia. Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. So um, you could say that Alzheimer's disease is a component under a broader uh, definition of, of an umbrella called dementia. And do we, do we use words like senility uh, at all? Uh, no, not anymore, Kevin. It's, um, uh, it's a long bypassed phrase. Um, senility comes with certain, um, uh, a certain stigma attached to it. And so the term is no longer used. Rather than, rather than calling somebody senile, um, we, um, we, we say they have dementia or they have Alzheimer's disease. Okay. All right. So there is lots of information and more and more coming out. This is being studied uh, very carefully. In fact, we keep hearing about breakthroughs right now. However, dementia and Alzheimer's is, is still on the increase. Yes. Um, there is no cure for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and, uh, um, we are still working out, uh, the causes for, uh, for Alzheimer's disease, uh, or dementia. 
Um, so as a result, um, um, initiatives like a, like a, an Alzheimer's Awareness Month um, um, are important in order to raise uh, a greater um, uh, a greater knowledge and understanding of the disease and what programs are available while we continue to search for um, um, a solution to it. And and we often think too, and mistakenly so, I know that you know dementia is just part of growing old. That that that's all it is. Right. Um, that's an excellent point, Kevin. Um, and in point of fact, uh, dementia is not a normal part of aging, uh, but aging is its most prevalent risk factor. And so um, this is particularly important here in the province of Ontario, uh, because we are now in a kind of age cycle where we have more people in Ontario over the age of 65 than we do under the age of 15. So um, it's very important for us to understand um, all issues relating to an aging population and, um, and top amongst all the issues is dementia. So, but we want people to understand that getting old is not nece- does not necessarily mean you will be re- you will be uh, contracting a form of dementia. Um, people um, generally age well um, as they move into their senior years. You almost have um, well, not almost. I think you have. Twice the workload, though. Um, so let's talk about other diseases. And I, I in no way want to diminish um, the significance or the impact of, of any other disease. But, but I, want to, I want to compare. So we have cancer societies, and we have people who live with cancer. And to a certain point, caregivers are, are definitely affected. However, there is a lot more available in the way of treatments and medical staff and doctors and nurses and, and, and care outside of the home. However, when it comes to Alzheimer's, when it comes to dementia, most, almost the entire burden is placed on the caregiver. And that's not lost on your society, is it? No, uh, that's another great point, Kevin. In point of fact, what often separates dementia from many other diseases um, is the is the uh, lengthy progression of the disease. We have families um, uh, that that we have been working with um, for over ten years um, uh, because of the lengthy, slow progression of the disease. Um, and so we've come to learn the families really well. They've come to depend on our services uh, for years upon years. Um, and, uh, and many of them have established close relationships with many of our coworkers just by virtue of the fact that the relationship has had to take on that kind of length. Um, um, and as the disease progresses, it becomes more of a challenge for caregivers to uh, 
uh, uh, to provide supports to their family member. And sometimes they tend to rely on the support of the Alzheimer's Society of York Region that much more. But the point being that um, uh, dementia is a 24-7 disease, um, and, um, and, and, and an especially challenging um, uh, disease for the caregiver um, because of the need to provide constant level of support to the family member. Not only constant support, but constant vigilance as well. Yes. Um, in in yeah, some cases. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you have to watch every, you know, be aware of every noise in the middle of the night or something, something uh, to that effect. So you're not getting a good sleep. So it must be very tough on the caregiver. Well, so one of the services that we provide, for instance, is uh, adult day programming. Um, we have program, we have uh, adult day programs located uh throughout the region, and uh, this is not only uh, a great service for the person living with the disease, but it's also, it also provides a, a form of respite for the family member, so the family member can get out and do some shopping or, uh, or, or some work, or even just to have a bit of rest. Mm -hmm. um, but like everything else during the pandemic, um, um, our day programming has uh, had to undergo um, some modifications in order to continue to function. Um, we've gone through a period of shuttering day programs, um, uh, reopening day programs, and also providing uh, our day programs virtually, um, uh, which, which many of the families um, have found uh, uh, great benefit in. All right, so here we are in Alzheimer's Awareness Month or in, in, in uh, Dementia Awareness Month as well. Um, what is your society doing this month? Because I know you offer a lot of services, a lot of workshops as well. <clears throat> yes, so, um, so uh, January being Alzheimer's Awareness Month. And so in particular, um, we're going, we have organized uh, a series of virtual lectures um, um, in specific uh, areas of Alzheimer learning. So for instance, um, we, have, we have a lecture series on um, understanding the risk of people living with Alzheimer's who may go missing, and uh, the lecture series also um, um, focuses on uh, ensuring that uh, people with dementia can live safety safely in the community. So, um, as a result of that, Kevin, um, I'd just like to point out uh, three particular lectures uh, um, for for the listeners. So, um, for instance. On January 21st, we have world-renowned expert in dementia studies and aged care, uh, Professor June Andrews, uh, who will be discussing safety uh, amongst our seniors' population in relation um, uh, to the importance of missing incidents. Um, on January 28th, we have Dr. Uh, Nolana Neubauer presenting research on the risks of going missing and how to prevent it, as well as Chantelle Bennett, 
with the York Region Police presenting Project Lifesaver and Sam No, who brings his first hand uh, the story of his father who lived with Alzheimer's and went missing over eight years ago. On, uh, and on February the 4th, uh, we will discuss the very important topic of dementia and driving. And joining us uh, for that is Dr. Gary um, Najili, who's Vice President of Medical Services at Baycrest, Beth Crystal, an occupational therapist with St. Elizabeth Healthcare, and Monica Lees and Daniel Frode, uh, York Region Police Senior Safety Team, speaking on the subject. All these lectures are free. They're all virtual, um, and but they do require... Uh, some pre-registration. And uh, you can find uh, additional information on this lecture series um, um, at uh, on our event calendar at our website, uh, alzheimer.ca slash york. And my guess is you can also find a lot of information and resources in, in living and dealing with dementia for caregivers, uh, maybe even to, to donate to these societies. That's uh, alzheimer.ca slash york. So, Lauren, thank you very much. I, I hope the month is very productive and really goes a long way to trying to end the stigma surrounding dementia. Well, this is, uh, this is the objective. Um, I think uh, the more we can do to, to address stigma, um, the more open we can be about the disease, the greater understanding that will exist about it in the community, and that will hopefully produce an even greater willingness of families to, to seek help. You know, um, one thing that we know is that um, um, receiving a family receiving a diagnosis of dementia can be devastating, and um, and and they often don't know where to reach out for help. Um, we want we want to be there for families uh, to be to be. Um, uh, to feel confident that they can call an organization like the Alzheimer's Society of York Region uh, to receive the assistance that they need and the programming support that they need and, um, and all other community supports uh, that would benefit not only the person living with the disease, but also the caregiver who cares for the person mm-hmm. living with the disease. All right, Lauren Freed, Alzheimer's Society of York Region, thank you so much. Kevin, my pleasure. Thank you. When we come back, she's an environmental teen activist and a changemaker. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Jim Lang is next with an 18-year-old environmentalist encouraging people of all ages to get involved. She's 18. She's a blogger. She's an author. She's making change in Canada around the world. She's an environmental activist. And she's someone that you need to know about, Hannah Alper, joining us on The Feed today. Hannah, how are you? I'm so awesome, even in all the midst of the weird 
things happening in the world today. I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, and really excited to be here. Well, I mean, that is the one thing that you're known for, Hannah, is despite things that may be happening in our own backyard around the world, you are sort of a beacon of hope and opportunity, and that's why the project, the the project, the Environment Fund, is so important through Canada Helps, uh, raising a lot of money, over $30,000 to date, to help forests and parks in this great country. And I, I know our prime minister is trying to plant billions of trees. It's something a lot of people are trying to do, and you and your group are doing something to make a difference. Yeah, it's truly so essential. And, you know, one of the hardest parts about making a difference is really educating and learning and really finding that exact right charity or organization where you know that your money and where however you've earned it are really going to a worthy cause and are do are truly making a difference. So the great thing with the Protect the Environment Fund is that it's going to a bunch of different organizations and charities that each have a different mission and, and a different goal in mind. So you really know that your money is actually making an impact. What is it about people like you and Greta Thunberg and other young people around the world that have made such an impact on older people like myself on opening our eyes to the environment? Well, I think that for us, we've grown up in a world where we are constantly worried about the environment and the urgent, urgent issues in the world that can seem daunting and overwhelming. But I think that the unique thing about my generation specifically is that we are hopeful, we're optimistic, and we know that things have, that that the world has the possibility to change and get better. And that's only with the help of other adults, with the help of world leaders, And truly, adults are ready and willing to listen to the voices of young people. And, you know, with organizations like Canada Helps and their initiative for Unite for Change that are really taking those voices of young people and putting them to action and partnering with other organizations, that's how we're going to make a difference. And I really think that you you can make a difference and things actually change and you can take action by recognizing that there is a problem and looking at all of the scary and daunting statistics. But the fact is that those different statistics of, oh, the world is going to end, they can make you feel really scary, sad and scared and depressed and make you even not want to help because you think, oh, there's no point. I'm just one person. What can I do? But the truth is that I've been an activist since I was nine years old. And my whole message is that one person really can do something because when that person maybe changes their habits to make a difference and to be more eco-friendly or sustainable in their life or take action on any issue that they're passionate about. They can inspire other people and it really becomes a ripple effect. So, you know, you recognize that there is an issue and that's so important to educate yourself, but then it's also seeing that it has the possibility to change and actually taking those steps to do something because doing something is always better than doing nothing. And we all have that capacity and the responsibility and the power to help and to take action. So truly, why not? And young people are those people that are stepping up and with the help of so many incredible supporters and organizations that are really doing the work and we're dedicated, we're here, and we want to support those initiatives that are really putting in the work to actually make that difference. Speaking with the amazing Hannah Alper of the Protecting the Environment Fund, and through your travels and all your uh, philanthropic work, Hannah, you have traveled across the world, across North America to Central America, South America, Africa. W- what do you learn yeah. speaking to other activists in other parts of the world so far removed from our own backyard here in Ontario? I've learned that I'm not alone. I think that especially, you know, I live in Richmond Hill and the suburbs, and there's obviously not a lot of ways to find and reach different activists uh, through, you know, living where I live. And Ever, but ever since I was nine years old with the power of traveling and that I've been lucky enough 
to have so many different opportunities to speak and connect with other young people, but also through the power of technology and social media, which I think is one of the best tools that anyone can use to change the world for the better and to connect with other people who are like-minded and who are really part of your community and are passionate about the same things that you are. I've learned that I'm not alone and I've learned that the world is safe in the hands of young people and the people that listen to them and support them and that are actually willing to make those changes and take action. But I've learned that young people are so truly inspiring. And again, being an activist and being anyone that wants to make a difference, it can be really daunting and it can get really depressing and like nothing that what you're doing is actually making a difference. But for me, it's seeing what other young people are doing to take action on any issue, whether it's the environment or homelessness or education. It's that that continues to inspire and fuel me on my journey and any action that I do, because I know that it's possible to make a difference. And, you know, I have this formula for making a difference and it's issue plus gift equals change. So you find your issue, that's that cause, anything you're passionate about. In this case, it's the environment, environmental conservation, and then you find your gift and that's anything that you can use to make a difference. It can be be music and it can be any money that you have to give with the Protect the Environment Fund for environmental conservation, but you put those two together and then boom, change. So I've been lucky enough to see and feature and shine a light on those people that are using that issue and, and using their gift to really change the world for the better. And it's those people, that positivity and that those people that are really truly creating change that inspire us to create even more change and take their journey further. Hannah, I know not everyone can afford a Tesla. Not everyone can afford massive solar panels. What are little things, small things that all of us can do that will add up and make a difference? For sure. I think that's so important, especially because as young people, we don't have a lot of money to give and people have so many different things in their lives that they need to make a living on. And so that's such an important question to ask. I think that we can really be sustainable in our everyday lives. You know, whether that's, I, I'm in university and it was really important for me and my family going into university to try to make my dorm room as eco-friendly and as sustainable as possible. So you can buy even eco-friendly uh, pods for the washing machine. You can buy eco-friendly notebooks, eco-friendly cleaning supplies. You can make eco-friendly cleaning supplies and an eco-friendly garage even. That was one of the first things that I did when I started my blog and started my environmental activism when I was nine years old is that I started making cleaning supplies. And then when I posted about it, people started commenting that they were doing it too. And I think that's so awesome that once you start taking action in any way that you can, share it so that other people can see that there is a solution. There is a solution with every problem and with every issue. And so you can do that. You can educate yourself on environmental issues and on any issue that you're passionate about and spread awareness and raise awareness. I think that there really is there really is so many things that people can do. I think people just kind of get caught up in all of the scary and daunting statistics that they think I can't do anything, but we can truly, we can always do something. I know my wife and I, we have two daughters in university and they've really opened our eyes, especially my eyes to make changes for the environment and how to do things better. Have you been able to do the same with your own family? Yeah, I have. My parents have always been so supportive and I've been so lucky with everything with my family and how supportive they've been of my activism and really recognizing the important and daunting issues in the world. And just like your daughters. Yeah. I think that as young people, we recognize that there's an issue and we actually go and do something about it, which is another such unique thing about our generation is that, you know, even when I was nine years old, starting 
my blog I about the environment and about different issues I was passionate about. I didn't think, oh, I'm just nine years old. I won't do anything. I just went and I did it. And I think that's truly the uh, mindset of so many young people like your daughters. And so I've really seen that my family has really taken to doing the little things that add up to make a big difference. And so many families can. I think it just takes a little bit of research sometimes. And so many people on social media have even dedicated their entire platform to raise an awareness about how you can be sustainable and eco-friendly in your everyday lives and in your house. But I totally agree. University can be such an eye-opening way of how students can conserve their waste and sometimes how they don't conserve their waste, but how you can really be sustainable. Well, I, there's so much talk about the toxic, it's like a toxic environment on Instagram and Twitter and other platforms of social totally. media. But Hannah, you you are an example of the good of the internet, the good of social media, because you are spreading a, an information and a message of joy and environment and peace. And How hard is it sometimes to fight through the trolls and get your message out there? Oh, it's incredibly hard. And I think that there are so many uh, older people that think that young people aren't they are aren't trying to make a difference and that we won't we, that we won't make a difference and that we have no power and i've gotten a lot of those comments on social media in real life everything like that comments saying that i've been brainwashed anything that you can think of and yeah it can get really depressing sometimes but i always think of the analogy of if there's 100 people in the room and 99 people 99 people are saying really positive things. And we always tend to focus on the one person that might be saying a not so positive thing, something that hurts us. And for some reason, it's that one person, that one person that's saying a negative thing that can completely destroy us and ruin our entire day. So I choose to not let that one person, those few comments or those, that, those few negative responses ruin or affect what I do because I think that it would be a service for any young person or any person that's really trying to take action to stop what they're doing or letting a bad comment hinder what they do or hinder pursuing their passion because of that. And I think that's simply letting them win. And again, I'm such a, I'm such an optimist and I'm really hopeful and positive. And I really do think that there's so much more positivity than negativity. So I think you just have to focus on that. The pride of Richmond Hill, York Region's very own environmental superstar, Hannah Alper. Hannah, give your blog a plug and give your social media platforms a plug because a lot of people will want to be part of your followers. Yeah, for sure. You can join my our community at uh, callmehannah.ca and my social media is at that Hannah Alper. And you can also check out Unite for Change at uniteforchange.com. Hannah, I can't tell how much I enjoyed this. Keep up the great work and keep on changing old people like me and opening our eyes and educating us on how to make this a better country and a better world. Thank you so much for giving people like me and so many others a platform, Jim. It was awesome to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.